My name is Dr. Ian Storch. I'm a board-certified gastroenterologist and osteopathic physician, and you are listening to DO or Do Not. If you're interested in joining our team or have suggestions or comments, please contact us at doordonotpodcast.com. Share our link with your friends and like us on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We hope you enjoy this episode. So we're very excited today to have Norman Gevitz, the author of The DO's Osteopathic Medicine in America. Norman, thank you so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Norman, j- just to let you know, the way uh, we started the podcast, we actually mainly interviewed DOs in practice. And we recently interviewed a surgeon who was talking about your book and said that part of the reason that he decided to go to osteopathic school was by reading your book. And I thought back to when I applied to osteopathic school and was considering it as a profession, I actually read your book also. (laughs) Do you realize many, many DOs in practice today were inspired by your book? On occasion, I will hear from DOs telling me that they read my book. And after reading my book, they decided to apply to osteopathic medical school. So I'm really happy to hear that. So Norman, can you tell us a little bit about what your job and position is now? So I am Senior Vice President Academic Affairs, essentially the provost for A.T. Still University, which has six colleges, two osteopathic medical schools, Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine, and the School of Osteopathic Medicine in Arizona, which is located in Mesa, as well as two dental schools, uh, one in Kirksville and St. Louis, two years in Kirksville, two years in St. Louis, and one here in Arizona, the Arizona School of Dentistry and Oral Health. Plus, we have a College of uh, Graduate Health Sciences and a College of Graduate Health Professions, the latter being an online school. So we have six schools in all, And we've just established a campus in California, which we expect shortly will become a seventh school. You started as a sociologist and and ultimately, I know you define yourself with the book as a historian. Can you tell me how this whole project started and how it led you to where you are now? Sure. Uh, I was a graduate student at the University of Chicago, and I was wanting to play a game of tennis with my friend who was graduating from an MD college in Chicago. And so we arrived at the tennis court and the court was busy. And so we struck up a conversation about what each of us was doing. At the time, I was interested in occupational role duplication, which is where one or more professions occupy the same space or want to occupy the same space do things that each other does, such as maybe lawyers and accountants doing taxes. And so since my friend was a medical student, I started asking him about occupational role duplication in medicine. And I asked him, well, you know, the difference between an ophthalmologist and optometrist. And he told me what the scope of practice differences were and the educational differences. I asked him about dentistry in terms of where an oral surgeon stops and a head and neck surgeon begins and where they overlap. 
podiatry. At that time, I knew that podiatry, at least in, in Illinois, that podiatrists wanted to move up from the ankle to the knee and some wanted to move up to the thigh. And I thought that a case of professional gangrene. And he told me what the difference was between an orthopod and a podiatric uh, surgeon and um, what the educational differences were. And then he said, don't ask me to tell the difference between an MD and a DO. And I said, what's a DO? And he said, an osteopath. And I said, what's an osteopath? <laughs> and he looked at me, gave me this screwed up look. And he says, well, MDs and DOs are similar. That is, they each go four years of medical school, but they have their own schools. They have their own journals, their own societies, their own residency programs, their own hospitals. And, and DOs employ drugs, they do surgery, but they also use a form of manipulation. And that's all I know, and I don't want to talk about it anymore. Well, the tennis court became open, and we played our game of tennis. And a few days later, I was just thinking about this, how unusual that I had never heard of osteopathic medicine. And I started asking my friends, fellow graduate students, you know, they heard of osteopathy or osteopathic medicine. They said, no. So I started asking a few of my professors and they said, no. And at that point, you know, I went to the University of Chicago library, Regenstein library that has like 2.5 million books. And at that visit, I couldn't find anything about osteopathy. And I concluded that my friend David was playing a joke on me. There was no such thing as DOs, that he was just tired of all the questions that I was asking and made it up. But that evening I went home and I had an old uh, version of the Encyclopedia Americana and I looked up and there was an entry to osteopathy. And, and I noticed that at the time, and again, this goes back decades in terms of when this encyclopedia was issued, that there was a school in Chicago. So I, I looked uh, in the phone book and sure enough, there was a Chicago College of Osteopathic Medicine and even more amazing to me, it was only five blocks north of the University of Chicago. So I, I, I've, <laughs> I found that fascinating. So I took the five blocks. I walked the five blocks when I got to the U of C campus. And I went into their library and I started reading. And this was 1974. And I looked at the, the latest journal of the JAOA, the Journal of the American Osteopathic Association, and, you know, again, I was not medically trained, but it looked like a medical journal to me because it had all this drug advertising in it. And, and the articles had to do with um, kind of like conventional medicine, surgery. And there were some articles specifically on the role of palpatory diagnosis and manipulative treatment. And I thought, wow, this, this is really interesting. And then I went to the very first issue of the JAOA, which was published in 1901. And I looked at that and I went, whoa, this is different because it railed against drugs. It said surgery was only for a last option and everything was focused around osteopathic philosophy and palpatory diagnosis and manipulative treatment. And I became absolutely obsessed with the idea of trying to find out the answers to two questions. One, why was osteopathic medicine so invisible? And two, how did it change over the years? How did it get from A to B? And it was a third question, too, as I got more into the research. How did the profession, 
which was a small profession, be able to withstand the pressure put upon it by the American Medical Association and other MD associations so that it could survive and thrive. And so that became my doctoral dissertation subject. It took me seven years to do because there was very little in the way of secondary sources. And I had to go through the entire literature of literally about 80 years or more, probably 90, in terms of reading journals and also understanding how did the idea of osteopathy evolve. And so it took me seven years to do my doctoral dissertation. And when I was done, it took me another two years. And that became my first book, The DO's Osteopathic Medicine in America, which was published in 1982. And in 2019 appeared the third edition, where I revisited what I had done, particularly the early years, and found a trove of information, which helped me better understand Uh, the origins of osteopathy and where Andrew Taylor still derived his ideas from. Norman, that's amazing. Thank you. That was an unbelievably short explanation of a really long story, I'm sure. But I would just say right now that anyone listening to the podcast, anyone interested in osteopathic medicine as a career, I think that starting with this book, which again was written a long time ago, but is definitely pertinent today is a must read, you know, and even if you're thinking about going on an interview at an osteopathic school and and want to be able to have a reasonable discussion, the book is a great place to start. So I'm going to start backwards a little bit toward the end of the book. And then I definitely want to talk to you a little bit about the history. So we recently interviewed a sociologist named Tanya Jenkins, who talks about hierarchies specifically in medical education today. And we discuss in the interview a quote that one of the medical residents gave to her that maybe osteopathic medicine was a backdoor into the medical profession. And upon speaking with this sociologist who did research and and really had an understanding of osteopathy and osteopathic medicine, she said at the end of the interview that she did not feel that it was a backdoor, but more of a parallel pathway with its own history. Would you fully agree with that? Or you think that's incorrect? I agree and disagree. I I refer to osteopathic medicine as a parallel profession of medicine. And certainly, again, it, it is a different pathway. But it is also true that throughout its history, getting into medical school, whether it be DO or MD is highly competitive. And each year, uh, since we have two schools here at ATSU, what faculty want to discern is the sincerity of the individual in terms of wanting to practice osteopathic medicine, someone who uh, has followed a DO, someone who has read a little bit about the philosophy of what osteopathic medicine stands for, because we, we basically want people to enjoy their career. Essentially, if they want to be an MD and they say, well, you know, maybe maybe I get into DO school or if they can't get into an MD school and and go to a DO school, they say, well, I just want to be a physician. You know, this is this is what sociologists call a terminal career. I mean, once you enter it, this is what you do essentially for the rest of your life. And if it's going to be for what you do for the rest of your life, it should be something that you really want to do something that you really want to engage in. There is something about being a DO that is different 
in terms of the training model, in terms possibly of the affect, in terms of uh, patient-practitioner relationship, in terms of dependence upon the self-healing powers of the body. There's something about it that is different. And, and, and basically, you know, I would say to applicants, you know, it's important that you enjoy your career path. And so for most of our students that we select, because it's highly competitive now to get into osteopathic medical school, that we are able to discern that. There are always some who, who basically just want to be a physician and, and say what needs to be said in order to get school. And they, they may do that and they may be successful. But I, I always question whether they'll be happy if they're entering a second choice. So basically, we would want individuals that want osteopathic medicine as their first choice. I think that's a great answer, Norman. And it was my first choice. I'm very happy with my uh, career choice. And I echo everything that you said. I'm just going to give you a quote from the book. It's a, it's a little bit long, but I think it's it was very profound. So this is under chapter 11, the, the challenge of distinctiveness. And I'm just going to quote you've Given its increasing closeness to standards and services, to its dominant rival, and the greater association between the practitioners of both professions, it makes little sense for the osteopathic profession, if it wishes to retain its independence, to continue stressing its similarities with allopathic medicine. The public is unlikely to believe that DOs can ever practice allopathic medicine in all of its manifestations as well as can MDs. Nor does the professional mimicry appear to be a viable way of obtaining public favor or recognition. As is readily apparent by the billions patients spend on the many forms of alternative medicine, they want choices. Therefore, from the market perspective, osteopathic medicine should find and develop the resources to produce not only qualified physicians, but practitioners widely perceived by the public and themselves to be different from MDs and arguably better in some aspects of the way they care for patients. I think DOs throughout their history, some DOs have suffered from what sociologists call status inconsistency. That is that they're full-fledged physicians, but the public does not recognize them as such because of the different letters behind their name. They do not know what a DO is. And here is the irony. At the turn of the 20th century, more people knew what a DO is than they probably know now. And the reason why is that DOs were different. They were fundamentally different in terms of what tools they used, what they thought about healing and health and disease and the means used in order to remedy problems. Over time, over, over decades, DOs have become increasingly closer to MDs in terms of their medical thinking, in terms of their standards, in terms of their approach to health problems, and the, the ways they, they try to remedy the ills of the people that they treat. So then people are asking the question, well, what's the difference between MD and a DO? And in fact, Again, at the turn of the 20th century, DOs were really highly distinctive, and now they're less so. And particularly those DOs who, for whatever reason, whether it's the specialty that they're in, do not really vary 
in terms of their diagnostic and therapeutic tools that they use. And that, that palpatory diagnosis and manipulative treatment has either a minor or no role in terms of overall care. And that's understandable for some specialties. But basically in primary care, if DOs are practicing the same as MDs, if they are using the same drugs, the same methods, then, then why should there be a separate health profession? Why should there be two professions, of one awarding the MD degree and one awarding the DO degree? So I think that for the purpose of identity, for the purpose of making a difference in healthcare, it is important for DOs to accentuate their distinctiveness so that the public knows that, that DOs do practice somewhat differently. I think that's to the advantage of the osteopathic profession if how they practice differently helps in terms of patient healing, in terms of the overall care of the people that they serve. I agree with that 100%. And that's part of what we're trying to show in this podcast. I think, you know, over the 50 odd physicians that we've interviewed over the past two years, it's clear that those DOs are strong in the philosophy and in the therapeutics and that it changes their treatment. So, so thank you. The second part, I'm going to parlay into the second part of what makes osteopathic physicians distinct, which is the main part of your book is our, our history. And I guess the first thing that I wanted to have you discuss with us is Andrew Taylor still. So ju- just to begin, when we talk about Andrew Taylor still, or, you know, there are other sources on Andrew Taylor still, and they call him an MDDO, and they say that he was a full physician. I think in your book, one of the important pieces is that there was medicine before the the early 1900s and sort of the golden age of medicine, where we knew about antibiotics and vaccines and, and things that we would consider modern medicine. And AT still sort of started in that era and that other DOs progressed the profession during the golden era. So, so can you talk to us a little bit about the real AT still, the importance of AT still, and then how the osteopathic profession went beyond AT still? So Andrew Taylor still was not an MD, and that's clear in the book. He had various stories about his his education, but he says uh, clearly that uh, he did not receive an MD degree when when finally pressed upon it. And so to relate to him as an MD is incorrect. Was he a doctor? Yes. Did he practice a form of orthodox medicine? Yes, but he did not have an MD. So it's appropriate to refer to him as either Dr. Andrew Taylor Still or Andrew Taylor Still Dio. He, he basically, he studied as an apprentice to his father. Some of his brothers went to medical school, graduated from medical school, uh, but he didn't. Still became dissatisfied with medicine, particularly in the 1860s, 1864. There was a, a, uh, an epidemic and his children died during that epidemic. And he felt that there should be a different way of treating because the physicians who he called to the bedside did all they could, switched doses, had various theories, and nothing could be done. And, and therefore, he thought there would be a better way. And, and so basically, what he ultimately did was to, to take two unorthodox 
theories. One was called magnetic healing. And magnetic healing and magnetic healers believed that there was a universal spirit that flowed throughout the body and that basically the uh, fluid would become tied up or blocked. And therefore, the, the magnetic healer would uh, restore that flow of that universal fluid. That was one element. The other one was uh, bone setting. And bone setters were also found throughout the United States. And they would not only fix broken bones or kind of like displaced bones, but they also helped in terms of dislocations, in terms of head and neck problems. And basically what still did ultimately was to confuse these two theories together. Instead of a universal fluid, a spirit fluid flowing throughout the body, still believed it was blood. And that he believed that there was obstruction of blood that caused disease and that bone setting maneuvers, flexion and extension techniques could remove that obstruction and that those obstructions could be observed, particularly in the spinal column. And that he would rub his hand along the spinal column, which magnetic healers did, and would find hot spots uh, or would find areas which he thought at the time were, were small dislocations. And he was able to treat that and also at the same time take people off of alcohol, morphine, antimony, any of the harmful drugs that were used at the time and patients got better. And so he was known as the lightning bone setter for much of his career And then finally, he came to the opinion, once he put these two theories together, that yes, uh, obstruction of blood caused by displacement was the cause of the disease and manipulation aimed at, at removing those dislocations could cure disease. He came up with a theory of disease, which was his own. And he came up with the name osteopathy in order to mark it as something distinctive. And over time, Many people wanted to study with him. In 1892, he established his own school. And basically, it was a very limited curriculum. It was essentially a bone setting. It didn't have the basic sciences other than anatomy. And basically, students would take the course in anatomy, and then they would follow him into the clinic where he would treat patients. Gradually, the curriculum expanded tremendously because he recruited individuals who had considerable formal education, and they expanded the curriculum. And osteopathy became the equivalent of uh, other medical sects of the time, whether it be allopathic medicine or homeopathic medicine or eclectic medicine or physiomedicalism. And so osteopathy became regulated just as these other movements were in a limited way because it was limited at first to essentially using the hands, but gradually over time, DOs were able to get full, complete licensure where they would be allowed to do drugs, to give drugs and to perform surgery. And that took place over a period of about 30 years of controversy, where some DOs uh, wanted to stay with the early form of osteopathy. They were known as legion osteopaths. And those who wanted to use all modalities that had been proven, both diagnostic and therapeutic, they were known as the broad osteopaths. And in 1929, after, again, 30 years or more of debate, the broad osteopaths won. 
and osteopathic schools were free to teach the widest possible scope uh, in an effort to get full and complete licensure. So again, just I think the interesting point, Norm, and I just want you to correct me if I'm wrong, but when AT still was starting the profession, the, the treatments did not include medications and things that we know are beneficial today, such as antibiotics and vaccines. And when those things came about, that was sort of where the discussion came up and the broad osteopaths won saying, yes, we believe in manipulation. We believe in the philosophies brought forth as by AT still. However, we also believe that things like penicillin is helpful. We think that things like vaccinating people against disease and preventing things is beneficial. And we don't think that excluding those things from our practice is the way that we want to move forward. We want to incorporate all of these things together. Is, is that correct? That's, that's correct. The, the only drugs that still endorse, because he did endorse surgery, and he did endorse DOs practicing obstetrics. So he did endorse anesthetics, antiseptics, antidotes, germicides, and he did uh, want DOs to perform surgery as would be performed by a country doctor. Over time, uh, the profession felt that it had to go beyond that, that, that drugs had proven their value, vaccines and serums had proven their value. And so essentially, before Still died, he recognized that the profession was moving beyond him to increase the scope of osteopathy so that it would become osteopathic medicine. It's just amazing, again, to appreciate our history of starting at that place, but then expanding. I guess at that point in the book, you go into a lot of detail, which is very interesting. So now osteopathic physicians have decided that they want to be complete physicians. And I think uh, one of the terms that you use is the materia medicus. Can you talk a little bit about the materia medicus and what the incorporation means? Well, basically, you had cited some of it. The sulfur drugs came out in the 30s. Penicillin came out in the 40s. And, and again, you had vaccines and serums, including diphtheria antitoxin. And there were many you know, stories of where DOs did not use the antitoxin. And there was a case of one DO who was vice president of the American Osteopathic Association who fought it out without uh, diphtheria antitoxin uh, being given to his child. And the child died. And he admitted that he made a mistake. And the, it was really kind of heart-wrenching. You know, you had the original philosophy. And then, you know, the materia medica, that is the drugs that MDs would use, and also the quantities in which they use, went through a rapid transformation, particularly after the turn of the 20th century. And although the wonder drugs did not appear until the 30s and 40s, there were enough remedies that were available that, again, you could see their value in specific cases. And so uh, what DOs had to come to grips with ultimately is could they provide evidence that osteopathy, if you will, what was called straight osteopathy, could battle a particular ailment better than, you know, osteopathy plus whatever drug well, seemed to be indicated for that particular condition. And over time, it, it became clear that DOs felt that just using straight osteopathy alone 
was not what patients wanted, which is important, but also that they wanted to make a, a difference in terms of the standard of care. And so they felt by combining osteopathy with elements of medicine, that the patient's uh, needs would be better addressed, and also that, that patients would be improved as a result. Norman, in the book, you sort of progress from there into some of the other segments of medicine at the time sort of being assimilated with osteopathic medicine standing firm on its own and some of the challenges in licensure. Can you talk to us about that briefly and then tell us about what happened in California and why that was so important for a positive and a negative? So again, when when osteopathy started, there were other parallel professions of medicine. One was homeopathy and the other one was eclecticism and a third was physiomedicalism. And by 1900, that there was a challenge, if you will, uh, for those alternative parallel professions because they awarded an MD degree, much like the allopathic profession awarded an MD degree. And again, homeopaths, eclectics, physiomedicalists wanted to incorporate the remedies, the drugs that allopathic MDs did. And also after 1900, that all four groups decided that they would have one accrediting body over uh, medical education, over MD medical education. And as a result, all of the parallel professions that awarded an MD degree declined because the AMA, in terms of their uh, Council on Education, was increasingly raising standards, and these schools could not compete. Plus, many of those schools no longer relied upon the distinctive therapeutics uh, that they uh, had basically evolved from. And, and so their schools lost. And so the last two homeopathic schools, those schools that, that, that call themselves homeopathic, were required in 1935 to drop the term homeopathy and also no longer mandate that homeopathy be taught. In 1939, the last eclectic medical school closed. And so that meant that only osteopathic medicine was a sole parallel profession left. And so there's a lesson in that for today's DOs, because with the, the recent merger of the two residency accrediting bodies, one uh, by the AOA over osteopathic residencies, and the other much larger ACGME, which covered allopathic uh, residencies, by having one accrediting system over all residencies that DOs face a real challenge now because they've lost one aspect of their distinctiveness. Even though under ACGME rules that historically DO programs can get what is called osteopathic recognition, a minority of osteopathic programs have chosen to do so. And although under ACGME rules that the new residency program of neuromusculoskeletal medicine, which is essentially OMM, could become a recognized specialty, there are very few of those programs. And so DOs have done very well 
in the match in the in in the match program uh, under one accrediting body now under ACGME that the that there isn't uh, there's only minor difference between MDs USMDs and DOs in terms of the ability of each group at least of graduating seniors to gain approved residencies that many MDs are now pressing their case as they did before the ACGME merger that there should be one accrediting body over all medical schools both allopathic and osteopathic and osteopathic medical schools are for the most part non-university based or not state based state university based and have a different organization and structure and a, a different way of educating medical students than their uh, allopathic uh, counterparts. And they do not have the resources that the MD schools have. And so that really, that really is going to pose a challenge if there is uh, one accrediting body over uh, allopathic and osteopathic medical schools. And I've, I've basically given the profession alert to that as to what happened to homeopathy and eclecticism and physiomedicalism. But it seems that, that the profession is resistant to that idea. But it is clear that many in the in organized uh, allopathic medical education would like to see a, a combination of the two accrediting bodies into one. And, and basically that osteopathic schools would have to be governed under not only LCME standards, but more importantly, expectations as to what meets that standard. So I think there's going to be a great challenge ahead for, for the continuation of osteopathic medicine, should there be one accrediting body uh, governing both types of schools. Norman, it seems to me, go, again, going back in your book historically, this is not a this is not a new question, right? It seems like the AMA is, that you brought up the California merger for a large portion of the book. Can you talk a little bit about the California merger? And then it seems like after that, the AMA was trying to absorb uh, the osteopathic association, but the osteopathy was able to stay distinct. So in California was a unique situation in many ways. The California School, the College of Physician of Osteopathic Physicians and Surgeons, or what was known as COPS, it was a different school. It had a large county hospital that was assigned to the school, much larger than what any other osteopathic school had. DOs in California considered themselves, and this is in quotation marks, more scientific than the rest of the osteopathic community. When they did a survey of graduates of all of the osteopathic schools, in terms of uh, the percentage of graduates from each school practicing distinctive osteopathy, part of their practice, the California graduates were far below any other osteopathic school. They also believed that, that somehow that the other osteopathic schools, in terms of their standards and practices, were bringing them down, that they couldn't achieve the status and recognition that they wanted in California, even though they served 15% of the population and they were very powerful politically. 
So it was a situation where California MDs wanted to eliminate the profession. They couldn't. They tried several different ways to do so. The profession was resilient. But then you had a, a large group of DOs in California that basically wanted the status that their MD counterparts had. They wanted the residency programs. They wanted the internships. They wanted everything. And as a result, for several years, since the 1940s, that they had tried to effect a merger uh, with their California MDs. And ultimately, they were able to do so. And, and so in 1961, 62, that approximately 2,000 DOs uh, filed into a hall, paid $65, did not have to do any postgraduate work or anything, and exchanged their DO degree for an MD degree. And this created a crisis within the rest of the profession because California was about one-sixth of the entire osteopathic profession. And so DOs elsewhere had to make a decision as to whether they wanted to merge or not or remain independent. And clearly, at that particular time, that the belief of, of many MDs was that the DOs were a problem and merger was a way to eliminate the problem. DOs were not viewed as colleagues. In fact, what DOs recognized was in the pages of the Journal of the American Medical Association and in other journals that writers, MD writers, referred to physicians and osteopaths. And so there was a lack of respect. There was a lack of equality or recognition. And so many DOs, basically, once they saw that message, felt that the merger would not be something that they would want to engage in. And as it turned out, it rebounded to their benefit because since California MDs did not have to take any further graduate work, that they just simply for $65 exchanged their DO degree for an MD and were recognized as physicians in that state and only in that state as MDs, that there were the DOs elsewhere who were trying to get full physician and surgeon uh, licenses now found it was much easier to do so because California indicated that there was no appreciable difference between MDs and DOs. And so the MD argument that DOs were inferior was basically kind of like defeated by their own effort to make DOs into MDs just by paying a fee. And so in state and after state, DOs who had been denied full physician and surgeon licenses were able to get it. Also, DOs were able for the first time to get into the U.S. Armed Forces as physicians and surgeons, as DOs. They were first time were getting federal grants in order to support their activities. And again, DOs achieved uh, legal equality with MDs as a large effect of the California merger. So it was an interesting process where there was a great sense of loss, but there's also a gain. And the other gain that DOs got was because of this now equality and because of this perceived shortage of physicians and where the MD profession was not willing to expand itself, DOs were. And so starting with Michigan State University, in 1969, a whole raft of state-supported medical schools, six in all, were able to be established. And then today, 
starting in 1962, there were five colleges of osteopathic medicine. Today, if you count branch campuses, there are 42 colleges of osteopathic medicine around today. And there are 30,000 students in DO schools. And one quarter of all U.S. medical school graduates now are DOs. So here's something where the the MDs tried to eliminate the osteopathic profession. But by eliminating just the California DOs, the profession itself rebounded and owes its current status very much to what happened in California. Norman, I think the story is amazing. I think the way you tell it is amazing. And I think going back to what you said about osteopathic students, osteopathic schools being absorbed by the allopathic profession or the MD profession at this point, any student that's listening to this, that and going back, I would not sell my DO degree for 65 bucks. I would not trade in for an MD right now. I hope that most of the students listening would agree with that. And for those of you that would, it's worth going back and, and listening to the history that you present in the book and understanding how much the osteopathic profession went through to get our current students to where they are today. Norman, I, I just want to finish up with, with a, a quote and ask you an opinion. So again, another quote from the book is, osteopathic medicine is a social movement as well as a profession, which I love. And then you define the fundamentals of of osteopathic principles, which all DO students that are listening will know, but maybe some of the pre-meds or MDs or other people that are listening may not know, which is that the body is a unit and a person represents a combination of mind, body, and spirit. Number two, that the body is capable of self-regulation. Third, structure and function are reciprocally interrelated. And fourth, that rational treatment is based on an understanding of the first three tenets, which I think is, you know, we should never forget. And I think MDs should think of that always as well. Norman, what I want to ask you in closing is, uh, I'm hoping that a lot of pre-medical students are listening to this. And when we started our discussion, you were saying that you know, for your school specifically, and obviously for all osteopathic schools, we want students that are interested and engaged and appreciate osteopathic medicine. So what would the perfect applicant for you? So a pre-med that's coming in, what would be special about that student as far as their background and, and their thoughts on osteopathic medicine, their understanding of osteopathic medicine that would make you consider them an optimal or really good candidate for one of your two osteopathic schools? You know, that's a really good question. And it's hard to answer that because we have a holistic admissions process at both of our schools. We look at, first of all, we take volunteerism seriously. And there's the expectation that um, students serve others. We want students to be able to serve others. We're very deeply committed to the underserved and both in terms of applicants and also in terms of serving the underserved. At SOMA, which is our newer medical school here in Arizona, that the students um, spend one year in Arizona and then three years in a community health center. And community health centers serve about 30 million Americans. They have a sliding fee base. 
they are modern facilities, and they are committed to the underserved. And so we want students, and Kirksville has always had as its mission, or part of its mission, uh, producing rural practitioners, which are very much needed in society. So, you know, obviously that we look at, at grades, we look at ambition, we look at dedication, we look at whether the students' desires match our philosophy, we look for earnestness, we look, we basically look at the whole person in terms of the candidate, what they want to do and what they want to be. And most important, if they have all those, all those factors and, and they want to be an osteopathic physician because they feel that being an osteopathic physician is to be something special, that's the candidate that we would want. Norman, I, I thank you so much for your time. I love the answer. And I hope that if I was applying again, you would you would still take me. <laughs> you did. You did, though. I, I interviewed with Margaret Wilson. I, I was accepted at Kirksville for, for medical school. And uh, just because of, of family commitments, I ended up back in New York. But if I could do it again, I'd have to think a, a little harder, I think, about the decision. That's that's great. Uh, hey, look, I'm, I'm a native New Yorker. Um, and I know what, what, you know, I've lived, I, I taught at NYIT for four years as well. And so I, I understand the special desire also to be in New York. There's nothing wrong with being a New Yorker. <laughs> I appreciate that, Norman. I appreciate it, Norman. Thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Ian. This concludes our episode of Do or Do Not. Send all inquiries, comments, suggestions, and even let us know if there's someone you want us to interview to do or do not podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at do or do not podcast for updates. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it with your classmates and administration. We have plenty of more interviews lined up and we're excited to share them with you. This is Tian Yu Shea. Thank you guys so much for listening to do or do not.